0: The Triathlon Show 415. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by ScientificTriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Dr. Josephine Perry, Josie is a psychologist working across a wide range of sports but with a particular interest in triathlon as she's an age group triathlete herself. We'll get right into the interview after thanking our sponsors Precision Fuel and Hydration that help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools, education, and a patented sweat test. You can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for carbohydrate, sodium, and fluid intake. And you can also book a free 20-minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team. I've used their entire range of products for a long time and I think they're absolutely brilliant, and I would highly recommend you try them out. You can get 50% off your first order by using the code TTS23 on PrecisionFuelAndHideration.com and thank you to senate the senate indoor swim trainer allows you to improve your technique power and swim training consistency even when you're short on time as you can do something short but with good quality at home and save a lot of time on commuting to the pool it is also a great tool for training through pool closures or certain injuries like road rash as i mentioned i've been dealing with the last few weeks in these situations the senate can help you maintain your muscular endurance which in my experience is often a problem otherwise as swim specific muscular endurance seems to deteriorate quickly and uh, The magnitude of of deterioration can be big, much more so than technique in my personal experience. You can try the Risk Cree for up to 30 days, and you can get 20% off your first order on sanitimtrin.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Dr. Josephine Perry. Welcome to The Triathlon Show, Josie. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm good as well. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Let's start with uh, a bit of an introduction. Can you tell us more about who you are?
1: Yep, uh so I'm a sports psychologist and I live in London. I got into sports psychology because I've been doing triathlon. I think it'll be 20 years next year. And I was doing Ironman for I think I've done 6 or 7. Way before children. So I don't tend to do the long distance stuff anymore. I haven't got the time to train for it. But it used to be our thing, and we travel around the world doing lots of races. And I got into it because um, I was working in an entirely different career, very kind of corporate city work. And I went over to Ironman Melbourne. And I was standing on the beach watching the waves, feeling utterly terrified because they were awful that day. It was 2013, if anyone wants to do a YouTube search of it, it was really bad. And that guy on the tannoy said, you can't control those waves. You can control how you feel about them. And it was a genuine light bulb moment for me of like, ah, oh, if I used my brain when I raced rather than just thinking about my body, I might be able to do a bit better. And so that was 10 years ago and it just took me into to sports psychology, wanting to learn much more about it. Had to take two master's degrees, then do three years of practice. And now that's what I do all the time.
0: Yeah, and is your focus... Specifically within mostly triathlon and endurance sports or all sorts of sports, even outside of sport, how how do you work?
1: Um, I think I've counted 28 different sports I've worked with now. So yeah. I definitely have a soft spot for triathletes. And triathlon feels much easier to work in because you, each sport tends to have its own language and its own kind of atmosphere. And hopefully I really understand the triathlon language and, and how things work and where some of the different pressures are. Will come in for athletes and and get this world but it's actually really interesting to work across different sports because there are things you can learn from other sports that are actually very helpful say for triathletes too so it really helps you give a better service to those triathletes
0: Do you have an example that comes to mind? I always find that as a coach as well, interesting learning about other sports, because I I definitely agree. Do, Do you have an example that you can think of, of something you learned from another sport that you have then been able to apply in triathlon?
1: I guess there's two things that come across. One is that one of the things we often work with an athlete is talking about almost like coach on a shoulder. When you're competing, if you had a teeny tiny version of your coach sitting on your shoulder, shouting stuff in your ear, what would that be? And in a lot of sports, it's always the same thing. And it always surprises me. So athletes know it really well. They don't necessarily do it, but they know it. And it's patience. And I think, and particularly sports like that we think are quite fast or combative, like fencing and tennis, they are always saying, oh, I know I need to be more patient. And I think that transfers quite nicely over because triathlon feels like we need to hammer it all out the whole time, get going as fast, as fast, as fast. But actually, sometimes almost having a bit of a step back and being able to be a bit more strategic in what we do and have an overview can be quite helpful. Other thing I tend to see is I work a lot in performance anxiety. And that's interesting because people who get performance anxiety tend to be very similar they tend to be highly intelligent, and they tend to be perfectionistic. And we have lots of highly intelligent perfectionists in triathlon, but we also do in a few other sports, particularly tennis and golf that I spot. And when we feel under threat, because we're a highly intelligent perfectionist doing sport, has a very strong physiological response on your body. And one of the physiological responses on your body is a huge kind of tension. And particularly back and shoulder muscles really get very, very tense when you feel under that pressure. And we don't physically spot it so much in triathlon, but we spot it in sports where they use balls and particularly sports where they use balls and they use some piece of equipment to hit balls like tennis and golf and snooker. And when they have that muscle tension, they are unable to hit their ball in the way that they need to. And that's why we talk about in golf, you might get something called the yips. Or in tennis, you're just double faulting the whole time because your ball can't go where it needs to because you're so tense and tight. And exactly the same thing impacts us in sport, in triathlon, but we don't tend to see it so obviously in the same way because we're not trying to hit a ball with a piece of equipment. But we will see someone who's more likely to crash because they're gripping the handlebars so tightly or we'll see somebody that can never hit the times that they're doing in the pool when they're in open water because everything's just tighter and tenser so it's sometimes quite helpful to get say triathletes to go and watch other sports because you can see look you can see what's happening to that athlete there do you think a similar thing might be happening to you and it's a bit of a light mold moment of like oh yeah it's like right well when you can control the anxiety you will perform better because suddenly you're not tight you're not tense so you can sometimes use kind of lessons from other sports in that way
0: yeah that, that's really fascinating and, and with that example with the, the tension I, I imagine that even if you don't crash even if you don't have those sort of very visible issues over the course of a longer triathlon, you might even, like that muscle tension is costing you energy. It's, so your economy is, is reduced and even if you don't necessarily feel it, but you're just running a bit slower, cycling with a bit less power just because of that reduced economy.
1: So yeah. when really you have one. reduced economy, everything feels harder. And one of the things we're always trying to get athletes to do from a sports psychology perspective is to reduce their perception of effort. We want what we do to feel a bit easier so that we can go faster or go longer. And as soon as we notice that tension coming up, we can't do it. Everything feels harder when you're tight and tense. And so you slow down. So as you say, it has big impact on our performance, but it's just harder to see in triathlon. It's harder to measure, whereas it's so visible in something like golf, where somebody's trying to hit a ball and it's going off in entirely the wrong direction at the wrong velocity because of that tension so it can help sometimes to watch other sports
0: yeah i guess we already started talking about some some common issues that come up with triathletes and other endurance athletes but do you have some other very normal issues that you tend to work with with clients that come up fairly fairly regularly
1: yeah i I guess i only work with people who've got issues or worries. And it's usually got to quite a deep level by the time they reach out to come and see a sports psychologist. So I'm not working with like a national team where you'd be helping people with everything. I'm only working with people who are really struggling with something. And it tends to be in two areas. One is those highly intelligent perfectionists who are trying to handle massive levels of performance anxiety. And the performance anxiety usually means they tend to freeze and shut down a little bit and they really struggle to get the best out of themselves. They always explain it as I'm overthinking. I wish I could take my brain out of my head when I race and I never live up to my potential in a race. My potential always feels like it's great when I'm training. I hit all the numbers I should be. I'm going into a race feeling like I should be able to do this and something is stopping it. Something's getting in the way. So that's, That's a significant amount of my work. And then a few people come along because they're lacking motivation. They tend to be highly intelligent realists because logically, it's not particularly clever to do triathlon. I love it. I totally, totally love it. And I I get why we all do it. But if you're looking at a very biological perspective in our brain, it's not the most sensible thing to do we all train far more hours than is probably good for our body from a health perspective. So the research suggests if we want to be as healthy as possible through exercise, you probably want to be doing up to five hours a week. And that would be a real mix of different things. And most triathletes I know are doing way more than that. So from a health perspective, triathlons, when you take it seriously, is not the most healthy thing we could be doing. Plus, it uses up a lot of energy. It can cause us some stress and tension. It means we have to add loads of extra stuff into our day. So a brain's job that is to keep you as safe and secure and as comfortable as possible isn't going to like somebody doing triathlon necessarily. So if you're highly intelligent, your brain's going, look, my job's survival. My job is to keep you surviving and comfortable and living as long as possible why are you doing 15 hours a week of training? That's a dumb thing to do. Why would you do that? Much better to to hold off. And so you've got this very, I guess, logical part of your brain that wants to keep you safe. And there's also like the dreamy part of your brain, the ambitious part that's like, no, I really want to be a good triathlete. I want to win stuff or I want to travel around the world to races. And I love this and I love the social life I get and I love the feeling of doing it well. And you've kind of got this disconnect between this part of your brain that wants you to stay safe and comfortable and this part of your brain that wants to do brilliant things. And so I find the highly intelligent realists have got this clever part of their brain that's saying, why are you doing this? And they've got this real kind of stretch between, well, I really want to, but also I know deep, deep down, it's probably not the best thing for me. And so they struggle with motivation of like, how do I push myself? I can do it and I'll go out and I'll do the, the steps and the bike rides and stuff, but how do I push it harder? How do I make myself hurt? Because it's it's not a logical, rational thing to make yourself hurt.
0: And and what are some of the solutions that that you have for that problem or that you work through with clients?
1: So for motivation? Yes. Two things really. One is I use a theory called self determination theory that I'm a geek. It's my favorite theory. And it basically says there's three types of motivation that we have as humans. There's A, motivation, cannot be bothered. I am going to sit on a sofa and drink my cup of tea and I'm not going out to do any exercise. You've then got extrinsic motivation where we are motivated by prize money or medals or kudos or being recognised by others as being a triathlete. And that is very helpful for a while. It can work well when we start out because we want to do our first race. We want to be able to tell people we're a triathlete. And it needs to work well when you're an elite or a professional athlete because it becomes your your lifestyle and your livelihood. So you need to be going after that prize money or those race wins. But we talk about the, the real motivation, the one we're all aiming for long-term is intrinsic motivation, where we are doing triathlon because we love it. We love the feeling of going out for a great run. We love being on our bike. We love that mastery of finally hitting a time in the pool. We love the social elements that come with it. And this theory says in order to get intrinsic motivation, you need three pillars in place. So you need a sense of belonging you need mastery, you need to feel like you're good at it, and you need autonomy, you need a choice and a voice over how you do it and what you do. And so I work mainly with athletes on those three things. How do we increase their sense of belonging? And certainly my experience in triathlon has probably been, it is one of the loveliest sports to be in. It's so friendly. People are really willing to help each other out. Probably the only one that's friendlier is ultra running. Ultra running just seems like, if I could run that far, I would do it because everyone there is lovely and welcoming and has this great community. But triathlon is pretty good for that kind of community feel and the clubs and the welcomingness and feeling like you're part of it. And so that one's usually pretty easy to to ramp up. That might be making helping somebody join a club or leading a group ride or doing more forums or listening to podcasts that make you feel like a triathlete. Then when we look at mastery, how do we make someone feel like they've got the skills they need? Not winning stuff, because winning just adds in a whole load of other complications, but mastery of like, how do I feel like I'm the best triathlete I can be? And there we might do something like a skill sheet where we'll literally pull out 10 skills or technique things or times that they might want to hit that every time they do it, they put a little date or a signature next to it until they're giving themselves loads of physical evidence that they can do this sport. And it's a brilliant thing to be able to look at and go, yeah, look all the stuff I can do. Yeah, I've got this. And autonomy is probably the trickiest one, but it's about finding races or places to train that you really, really love. And that's the one that tends to disappear when someone gets better or someone becomes professional, because it's more about, well, which races do I need to do? Or what are other people pushing me to do? Or what should I be doing? Rather than just being able to do it for the love. Oh, I've always wanted to go there. Let's sign up to that half Ironman or let's sign up to that race. But it's really important you feel in control of your sport. And I find that's the hardest bit with junior athletes. It's they don't feel like they own their sport. They're doing, especially if they're in academies. They're doing the sport that, or the races that everybody in the academy has to do or the youth elite series in the UK or that their parents are telling them they need to do. And so that can be when they tend to fall out of love for, with it, when they're not getting to make their own choices.
0: Yeah, that, those are super interesting points. And yeah, it, it, it does make me think as a coach, what what can a coach do to, to help an athlete achieve? For example, with autonomy, does it also... Can, it, can training, the training that you're prescribed, can that have an impact or how, how a coach prescribes your training? It, is that impo- an important factor as well? And the same thing with the sense of belonging. like That's something that I would try to encourage people to train with other people as well. But, but can you talk about it from the perspective of a coach as well?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I spend a huge amount of time with the athletes I work with in all sports, helping them deal with their communication with their coach to the point where we'll work out bullet points for their next conversation with their coach. Because coaches won't necessarily be taught about communication or personality styles and how that might work with an athlete. But some certain athletes will have very specific requirements that they need from their coach. The biggest one I see is those very intelligent perfectionists. If you are a very VIP, you need to understand why you are doing the training you are doing. You don't understand it, you won't do it properly, or you won't do it, and you get really disheartened. You have to be able to go, I know why I am doing this. This is going to help me, I know, in the last third of the run to be able to really push my endurance right to the very end of the line. And so, athletes who are like that need coaches that are going to give them all of that information without taking it as a personal affront. So, we don't want the coach to feel threatened that an athlete is asking for loads of information. The athlete needs it; it will mean they do better. That's their way of getting their autonomy. But sometimes coaches can get really offended that they're being questioned, as if the athlete doesn't trust them. And the athlete totally trusts them. It's just their own need for lots of information. So that tends to come up a lot that I see. Um, but absolutely, I think there are ways you can make it more autonomous for an athlete. Of Maybe not prescribe, I mean, prescribing sessions, but when would it work for you to do that session? Or being really clear, what is your favorite session? Because actually, sometimes not every session needs to be prescribed. Could be you've got an hour of, of an easy bike. How would you like to do that? And helping them have a bit more ownership of their triathlon. And I've certainly seen lots of athletes coming towards the end of their careers that don't want coaching anymore. If you've done 20 years of triathlon, you know what sessions to do. You know what works for you. You know how it responds on your body. What you really want is almost mentorship. You want somebody to run stuff past and to talk to about things and to get a big picture overview at times, but most of it you can do yourself. And I wonder if that's what we might start to see a little bit more is kind of some of those elite coaches that start to become more mentors to to athletes who are kind of reaching early 30s, later 30s, who can just be far less hands-on, but be that kind of wise head that they sometimes need just to give some perspective.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's super interesting and the and, uh, communication bit especially I've, I found was, yeah, ex- uh, very interesting to hear. Then, yeah, the, the first issue that you mentioned, that performance anxiety, can we talk through that as well in, in a similar model? What, what are the tools and strategies that you would use to work through that issue with, with clients?
1: So I have a very specific process I use for athletes with performance anxiety. So we start off with psychoeducation about your brain, which we can chat through in a minute we then look at outcomes versus processes. And then I have a very specific process called BRAVE that we work through. So if I was working with someone with performance anxiety, I usually will chat about it, but I will usually assume they're highly intelligent, and they're perfectionistic. Um, and an increasing number of athletes in that group um, are also becoming diagnosed with ADHD. And I haven't been able to look into it yet why that is, but there does seem to be, I think, I think the ADHD thing will obviously add a lot of anxiety into the mix. So I talk about the psychoeducation of it, that we have three functions in our brain that are really important when we're racing. We've got a habit function. The reason we do so many drills in the pool or when we're running and the, the miles and miles we do in training they help put the movements that we need to do in our races into the habit function in our brain. So we don't really need to think about it actively. If we're on the bike, we don't think, oh, I need to have a drink right now. I will grab my water bottle. I will take it out of the cage. I'll lift it up. I will drink. We just do it because we've done it thousands of times before. So we want a lot of what we do in racing to be within that habit function. We don't want to be thinking about it. We don't want to, how high should my elbow be in a race when we're swimming? We just want to do it. So that's a really useful function that we all have. We then have like a decision logical function where when there is a decision to be made in a race, this will drill into our hippocampus, which is where we, our memory, our learning, our knowledge is all kept. And we're usually able to make a pretty good decision and then tell our body what to do. So you're on the run. Your nemesis overtakes you and then slows down a bit. So at this point, the decision function is going to kick in going, right, last time you raced, Fred, he kept doing this and it was really annoying you. So what would you like to do now? This is an option or this is an option. And you make your choice and your body does it. And it's usually a pretty good option because you've been training and practiced and you've, you you can make, you're highly intelligent. You can make good decisions. And if we all just had those two parts of our brain functioning when we're racing, we'd do really well because you've trained and trained and trained to put stuff into the habit function. And you're highly intelligent, so you can make decisions and you'll make good decisions. And it doesn't mean you'll win, but it means you'll live up to your potential and your possibility of the level of training that you have done in a race. But as I mentioned earlier, your brain isn't designed to be a great triathlete. Your brain's designed for survival. That's what it really, really cares about. And so in order to do that, it has a number of different functions that help it survive. One of them is loving rules. Our brains love rules. It loves that kind of, not necessarily external rules, but rules we've given ourselves. So I must be able to reach X heart rate when I am on the bike, or I must do at least X hours of training each week. A triathlete's brain will start to give them these rules that we've picked up from our environment. Brains are also very good at predicting. Brains love to predict what might happen because they want to keep us safe. And if you're highly intelligent, your brain is really good at predicting lots of things, even though some of them are very unlikely ever to happen. But it tends to go down like some really unlikely routes but because it's trying to figure out, well, what would I do if that happened? And it has a, th- a function called our amygdala. And this is It's actually tiny. It's apparently got two of them and they look like an almond. They're really small. But their focus is to constantly scan our environment and look for threats. That is incredibly helpful if you're in a dangerous environment. So if you're doing Alpe d'Huez Tri and you are coming down one of the first mountains and there's no barriers on the side and the French dudes are flying past you, and you're utterly terrified, your amygdala is like, press the brakes, press the brakes, you're going to die, you're going to die, press the brakes. Probably quite a helpful thing to do, and we should listen to it. So for physical threats, our amygdala is incredibly good at keeping us safe, and it tells us how to stay in our comfort zone so we don't get under risk. But the amygdala also responds to psychological threats. And if you're perfectionistic, every single race is a psychological threat because you want to be perfect and you cannot be perfect in a race because perfection doesn't exist. And triathlon's too complicated for that. There are just too many things that are going to go wrong. I don't think anyone's ever had a perfect race. And so as soon as you're in a race environment where you're being judged or there's a big outcome to it, and the more important the the race is to you, the worse this will be the more your amygdala is going to trigger and feel really, really under pressure. And when it triggers, it sends two chemicals around your body, sends adrenaline and cortisol, flood your body very quickly because your body wants to do one of three or four things. It wants to fight, to flight, run away, or to freeze. Most highly intelligent perfectionists tend to freeze. And that's just pretend I'm not here. Don't want anyone to talk to me. Leave me alone. I'm going to go and sit by that tree until I have to race, but go away. And that tends to be their response to it if they get anxious beforehand. And when those chemicals flood your body, it can have five different responses that we tend to notice. The first one is it goes to your tummy. So it can make you feel really nauseous. And that's the butterflies feeling that some people will get with excitement. And it's the same feeling. Some of us will interpret it as excitement a highly intelligent perfectionist is likely to interpret it as illness. So some people will throw up, and I've certainly known athletes that are throwing up before races. Uh, most people just want to go to the toilet a lot. So the toilet's are always very full before races of people lining up because everybody's tummy is, is feeling that of like, oh. And you, your body wants to be light to escape the scary thing that it's imagined. It raises your heart and breathing rate. That's rubbish. If you're about to jump in a lake or the sea or a river with a hundred other people and go into kind of the washing machine elements of triathlon, you don't want a super high heart or breathing rate before you've even started. Then as I mentioned earlier, you get the back and shoulder muscles, get super tight and tense. And the other thing we tend to lose is if you're running away from something that's scary, you don't need your peripheral vision. You don't need your touch or your taste or your smell. So all your senses tend to shut down and all you can focus on is just what's in front of you. That's rubbish if you're in a lake because you're going to get a clunk to the head or you're going to start to miss the boy that you're supposed to be swimming to. So just understanding that can be really helpful for an athlete being able to go, oh, this is why I'm feeling like this. Right, I understand that. I know why I'm doing it. This part of my brain is currently in charge. Okay. Once you have that self-awareness, you can change how you respond to things. So the first stage is that kind of self-awareness. Then we really work on the trying to move away from I must win or podium places because they're all out of our control and much more onto mastery. How do I be a brilliant triathlete? Not how do I be a winning triathlete? Because when you try and be a winning triathlete, it triggers your amygdala. All that stuff kicks off in your body. It's very hard to do well. When you focus, I want to be the best triathlete I can be. You're then focused on tasks. Well, what does that take? That requires a good warm up. That means good nutrition before I start. That means lots of sleep in the build up to a race. That means constantly checking in with my body as I'm racing. How can I get a little bit more out of it? They're all things you're in control of when you focus on those, you tend to do far better than when you focus on the I must win. And then the longer term process I call brave. It's about being aware of the thoughts you are having, not trying to hide from them. That never works. It just makes us feel worse. So we want to really be aware of what our amygdala feels like it's telling us. We want to reassign those thoughts to our amygdala. We want to think about it like a little bit of a separate entity. It's telling me these thoughts. I don't have to respond to them, but it's telling me them. We then look at advocacy. How do you self-advocate better for yourself? What do you remind yourself of all the brilliant stuff you've done in the build-up? We look at an athlete's values, because their values are really important to being able to override the fears. And we then go for engage. What are those small things you can do that help reduce perception of effort or increase your motivation or improve your technique? so that you could just focus on the tasks and move away from outcomes.
0: Can you give some examples of the last two points here, the values and the engage? So starting with values, perhaps how, Yeah, what, what kind of values are we talking about here? Are they triathlon-related values no, and, and how do nice. they play into things? We like- want
1: an athlete bringing themselves into triathlon. We, certainly when I started working, we used to talk quite a lot about things like alter egos And kind of putting your alter ego on before you would do a race. And Leslie Patterson's talked a lot about the one she used to use um, when she was racing. And I totally get why she did it. And there can absolutely be some value to it. But I think it's stronger long term if we know who we are and we bring who we are into our racing. So interestingly, I've never had an athlete name the same three values. And I give them a sheet of 100. To kind of work through and work from. But they might often be things like achievement, validation, family, spirituality, authenticity, curiosity, courage. So they're values that we would be able to identify as ourselves in everyday life. But how do you use that when you're racing? So as a personal example, I've got a seven-year-old. And the one message I want to teach her is when things get tough, you don't quit. I don't want her to be somebody that, that stops when things are hard because that's probably one of my faults. And so I really want to change that with her. And so I can use that really well in a race where I've got bravery and family as two of my values. So that I'm literally, as I'm racing and as my brain comes in with that, oh, you could stop right now. This is too hard. Why don't you quit? You could, no one cares your results. You could just stop. I can use that to repeat over and over. Make her proud. Make her proud. Teach her that lesson. So you use that value as almost a motivational mantra. But I'm like, I cannot go home without a medal to give her from this race. When I cross the line, I can't not give her that medal because I need to teach her that You don't quit when things get tough. And what does that say if mummy quits as soon as it hurt a bit? And so you use what matters to you in order to do your best work when you're racing. And that will be different for each of us. And we all have our own backgrounds and motivations that feed into it. But that means when it gets tough for me, and when I want to stop. So I'm not a perfectionist at all. I'm a realist. My brain goes, this is a dumb thing to do. You could quit right now. And I'm like, yeah, why not? When that happens, I can go, nope, I need to make her proud. I'm going to make Hattie proud. And I then use like an instructional mantra to improve my body form and my body shape so that I can run better. Because it's always on the run that this comes up. So lift head. So I'll literally be make her proud, lift head. So as my head lifts, my shoulders go back, my chest comes forward, my body shape changes. I run better. It reduces my perception of effort, so my brain thinks, oh, it's not so hard, yeah, we can do this. So within five words, I've brought that whole process into things I can actually do. I remember how important she is to me, and I lift my head up, which changes my body shape, I run better, and I finish.
0: And and the instructional mantra of lifting the head here, that's an example from the engaged category yes. in the Brave framework. Yeah. Got it.
1: Um, And I find it fascinating that athletes are usually pretty good at knowing what that would be. So I'm like, it's if you're say, for a runner, if you're at a track session, what's the thing your coach says to you a lot? And they will always know. And it'll be like, Oh, pump arms. Right. There you go. That's your instructional mantra. What's the thing your swim coach is always saying to you? High elbows. Right. That's what you need to remember in the swim. And often we'll write it on hands. We'll write it on water bottles. If you're long distance racing, we'll put stickers on the gels or the nutrition you're using. I've certainly been known my water bottle on the um, bars of my bike, full of stickers of little messages from people with things like that. But it's really helpful in that moment when your amygdala is a bit in control because you're feeling under threat to have something very visual to look at to remind you what you need to be doing.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's that's really good. Thank you for that thorough breakdown of, of those two two problems and and how you work through them. There are a couple of other things that I noticed on your website that I wanted to ask about, which were the, the theory that you already mentioned was sorry, uh, let me try to remember it, self determination theory, yeah. and but then in addition to that, you you talk, to, talk about acceptance and commitment theory, and cognitive behavioral therapy. So can you explain what those are and in what situations you would use them?
1: So cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, is used a lot, certainly in the UK within psychology. And it's kind of identifying a problem and then attacking that problem until you've resolved it. I find that quite aggressive, A more modern version of CBT has come along called ACT. It stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And it's the idea that we are all going to have worries and fears. Every single human does. That's part of being a human. And what we spend a lot of time trying to do as humans is ignore them. And the amount of time I have heard people, oh, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Just don't worry. The more you try not to think about something, the more it pops up in your head really annoyingly. So ACT is very accepting of this. And it's like, yes, we are going to have worries. And sometimes that's helpful. Those worries are telling us something matters to us or something is important. Rather than spending all this effort and energy trying to squash them, let's hear them out. Let's notice them. So it comes from a mindfulness background of like, rather than trying to block things, let's notice. Because when we notice rather than blocking, we're not wasting energy. We're, we're able to sit with it. And so a lot of the work is about being able to sit with some of those unhelpful thoughts. I'm not good enough. I might be beaten by so-and-so. I don't look the way a triathlete should look. Some of those thoughts is like, let's sit with them and notice them rather than trying to squish them away or argue back or be combative with them. And I, when I'm working with athletes, that's why I'm talking about their amygdala, that threat system of let's notice those thoughts are usually coming from your amygdala because it wants you to stay safe it wants you to be in a comfort zone and it's going to give you some unhelpful thoughts in order to keep you in that comfort zone and so act is about let's notice the thoughts let's try and we call it diffuse from them so you notice them and you're aware of them but you don't have to act on them they are only thoughts they're not facts and we can really practice, we'll do work around, I am noticing that I am thinking this. So it's not I am a useless triathlete. It's, I'm noticing that I'm thinking I'm a useless triathlete. That takes a lot of the sting away. And when we're able to do that, and we notice, yes, we're having these thoughts, but they're not me, they're just thoughts, they're not facts. And then we look at our values, and that's the commitment bit of really committing to living our values, we can change that conversation in our head. So it's, yeah, I'm having these thoughts. I'm I'm noticing that I'm worried. I'm not a good triathlete. However, what really matters to me is being brave, is mastering things, and being a brilliant member of my family. And so if I do those three things through my triathlon, then the thoughts are still there, but I'm being me. I'm doing what matters to me and when I do what matters to me there will be a better outcome and so it's constantly like I'm accepting I've got these things but I am committing to being the person I want to be or the triathlete I want to be or the mum I want to be and it just helps you handle a whole range of things differently so I work a lot with youth athletes but May even though it's prime triathlon season we tend not to work on triathlon we tend to work on exams because they're nervous about their exams coming up and things, but they're exactly the same techniques. So once you've kind of mastered the idea of ACT and you're able to notice the unhelpful thoughts, but you're able to commit to the values that matter to you, you can do that in any part of life. So that's the approach I use and far more sports psychologists are now using that approach. We'll still use some mental skills that come over from CBT but the, the kind of the approach you go in with is an ACT approach of accept the worries and the fears and commit to being the kind of person you want to be.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great explanation. And just to give some examples of when you mentioned using some mental skills coming from CBT, can, can you just give a quick example of that?
1: Yeah, so often I'll do goal setting with somebody and we'll, we'll do it. First is a what's that big outcome goal you want? It will be uncontrollable. It will be outcome-based, but it's something that gets you excited. It's where that motivation comes from of, I really want to do this. Um, So we look at whatever that is, I don't know, qualify for the world 70.3 champs. So we'll then look and it's like, well, what race are you doing? I'm going to do this qualifier. What times does it on average take to qualify at that race, right? Somebody might go, I need a, a 4.45 half, in order to qualify and we'll we'll then put that into a performance profile so someone that can do a 445 half what kind of things are they doing and this is something that's really nice to do alongside a coach as well because you can absolutely pull that apart and they'll be like oh i think they're probably doing at least one really hard run interval session a week but they're doing two long runs and they're fueling every session really effectively and they're making sure they hydrate even when they're not training And you'll pull it apart into the image of this person that's doing their 445. And you've probably got maybe 20, 25 different elements that would be there. And then we're looking at, okay, these are all the elements in a 445 half iron manner. What's the prioritization? What's really important? And we'll score it out of 10. So the things that you are never going to get to 445 without doing, we'll get a 10. And the stuff that's a nice to do will be down at two or three but it gives you some differentiation. And then we look at where you are right now as an athlete. So if one of those things was fueling every session really well, and right now you do all your morning sessions fasted, you're going to be on a two or three. And if it was really important, maybe an eight out of 10 that you're fueling every session properly, and you're currently on a three, we take that away from 10. So there's a gap of seven there. We multiply it by how important it is and you get a score of 56. The actual numbers don't mean anything. But when you've done that for every of all of the 25 elements on there, you'll have a huge ranking and you can take the top four or five things. And whatever the top four or five things are, those are going to make the biggest bang for your buck when you do your training and your work and your effort levels. And we want to go and put those into your goal setting. Because if you work on those, that will make the biggest difference to your performance and whether you achieve that 4.45. So goal setting, performance profiling is a really helpful thing we often do quite early on in a process because it gives somebody the physical stuff. And there'll be some psychological stuff in there that we'll work on as well, usually around confidence and things. So it's a really clear thing then. It's a mental skill, but it does fit into this overarching element of, if you know your goals and you know what you need to do, you've got tasks to do. You can always do a task.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. Thank you for that. This is not on our list of questions, but since you mentioned working with with youth athletes, that's something that I wanted to to ask about. Do you see, I imagine that the, maybe it's not so much that, I, I imagine that the, the issues that they deal with are very different than, what, let's say, you as the parent of a seven-year-old daughter dealt with in the same age if you were doing sports or would have been doing sports Mm -hmm. but what would you say is for athletes listening young athletes listening now or even for parents of young athletes listening now do you have any kind of just general tips around how to deal with common problems that come up in in the younger ages and among athletes in particular
1: i do i've written a book entirely for teenage athletes if i can plug it So it's called I Can, The Teenage Athlete's Guide to Mental Fitness. And so it's 10 chapters of the main areas that you need to focus on as a teenage athlete with loads of worksheets and activities that you can physically do. So often the parents will buy two copies. So the athlete has got one, but the parents can also kind of get what they're working on and understand the concepts and the activities at the same time. In fact, I should have marketed it better and sold double copies or something. Uh, so, so, yes, there are. They they often have issues, but actually, I often use worksheets from that book with adults because the issues are the same. There are there are differences in if you're an adult trying to work alongside train and run a family, you're going to get burnt out. But my goodness, some of the athletes I work with have so many commitments. They're often not just doing triathlon. They're often doing school sports as well, or they might be doing PE as A-levels or GCSEs in the UK. So they're having to do lots of other sports stuff. Plus they've got homework. Plus the ones that tend to see me are the highly intelligent perfectionists. So they are at very good schools. I, I remember seeing somebody who had something like It was expected they would do at least 20 hours of homework a week at their school. Plus, they were a swimmer. So they were doing 15, 16 hours of training a week and trying to be a a teenager and have some kind of social life. So I often find for the youth athletes, it is that how on earth do you fit everything in and how do you cope with not being able to be brilliant at everything? Because this group are usually brilliant at everything. They still beat themselves up because they're not perfect. And they can't be perfect, but they, they do incredibly well at what they do. Um, and the other area, I guess, is that teenage brains are still developing. And so our brains don't really kind of settle until we're in our early 20s. And there are some things that go on for teenagers in their brains that mean sport can be difficult. So one of the things, when, when you're a young child, you learn everything. You're like a little sponge that just soaks up so much information and knowledge and learning. And you do think you learn how to do things really quickly. And so you've made loads and loads of connections within your brain on those things. But over time, you don't need all the connections anymore. So if I was learning to write the word triathlon, when you're a child, you'd be spelling out T-I. As an adult, you just write triathlon you don't need all those connections you made when you were younger. You've you've outgrown many of them. And so our brain does something called synaptic pruning, where it starts to get rid and lose lots of those connections you had as a child. And it starts at the back of your brain and works forward. And it's doing this as a teenager. But the last bit it comes to is our prefrontal cortex, which is the bit that makes those decisions. It's the bit that helps us with our cognitive reasonings and our decision making and our emotional rationalization and so that's the bit that happens last and yet it's the bit you really need when you're a teenager plus teenagers get very sensitive towards oxytocin and that's a chemical that mums have a lot of when you first have your child because it's a bonding chemical helps you connect with your baby And teenagers get really sensitive too. So they really want to bond and connect with people. They're at a stage when they're trying to move a little bit away from their parents and discover who they are. They've got this brain that's going through this process of pruning, but hasn't got to the bit that's most important yet. Plus their body clocks change. So they become night owls. So a teen can often struggle to fall asleep before about midnight because their body just doesn't want to fall asleep. Their circadian rhythm has changed and they have to get up early for school. And even earlier, if they're doing stuff like swim squads, So you've got all this change and flux going on in a teen's brain and they just want to be liked. They want to belong. They want to feel accepted. And then they've got all of these pressures about, you need to do extra training and you need to be doing racing and you need to have friends and you need to be doing well in school. That but I think is the hardest thing for a teen that's trying to do well in sport. So a lot of the sessions I do with teenagers don't actually cover that much sport. They're covering how do you handle difficult friendship groups or not being able to get an A because you couldn't do that extra bit of homework or what happens if I don't pass my exams as well as I should or I really want to impress my mum and dad. They've spent all this money and time on my sport. What if I fail? So we spend a lot of time actually on those life issues, really. And ACT is brilliant for that, which is why I use it, rather than how do I get faster at triathlon? Because when we've got a happier athlete, we've got a faster athlete.
0: Yeah, again, a a great overview. And and I will definitely link to your book in the show notes. So I'm sure a lot of people will be interested to go and have a look at that. I know we have we have less than ten minutes left, so let's try to get through one question and then the rapid fire questions. Well, one three part question, and that is if you can give the listeners one piece of advice that they can I- implement into their triathlon for race day itself, one tip for leading up to race day, and one tip for daily training or their general approach or relationship with the sport. Can you? Yeah, can you give one piece on each of those topics? Mm-hmm.
1: I would say for race day, have a goal that you are in control of. So to win or to get top three, you're not in control of. You've got no control over who else shows up. If anyone's cheating, if anyone's doing anything they shouldn't, there's nothing you can do about that. So you are then validating whether you've had a good day or not based on what other people do. But if you have a goal you are in control of on race day, You can then decide whether you have done well or not based on whether you lived up to that goal. And that doesn't mean we're not trying to do well, but it can be a goal that's much more focused on how do I do well? What tasks do I need to do throughout the race rather than worrying about outcomes? Because the outcomes just add loads of pressure. In the build up to a race, I would say stop panicking about not sleeping the night before. Everybody panics. I haven't had enough sleep. I couldn't sleep properly. I'm going to do badly everybody panics about the same thing so everybody is in the same boat about not sleeping so well and actually the research suggests it doesn't really make very much difference at all so do try and get good sleep in the week up to a race don't plan on partying every night but don't beat yourself up about not sleeping well the night before because nobody does it's totally normal and longer term in training i would say stop trying to win at training I caught myself doing this yesterday. I was in the pool at swim squad and only one other girl showed up and I caught myself racing her and I'm like, this is pathetic. It's drills. No one wins when they've got pull boy and paddles in their hands. Why am I trying to race? It's just an ego boost and it's not helping me do the point of this drill, which is to have much better technique. So we can all catch ourselves doing it but it's think about why you're doing that training session, what you need to get out of it and stick to that.
0: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So let's move on to the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first right. one is, what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports or uh, let's add sort of sports psychology or psychology in general to that?
1: I love Alex Hutchinson's Endure book
0: yeah that that is the most common answer to that question among all the interviews that i've done and it is a very very good book i wish i'd written it yeah Uh, what's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically professionally or personally
1: oh um commuting exercise during your commute
0: and who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you
1: so i say that one again
0: somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you
1: my daughter she lives that. Yes. She gets back every time she falls over. She gets back up, and I love seeing that.
0: Great. And where can listeners find you and your work, and and also uh, if you have any other books, then feel free, or anything else you want to plug, then feel free to go for it.
1: You will regret that because I have five books, but I have one for coaches. So if there's any coaches listening, it's called Performing Under Pressure, and it's how coaches can use sports psychology techniques with athletes and i also have one that's for everybody called the 10 pillars of success and there is a triathlete in it actually and um, lucy gossage is my last pillar in there and she embodies gratitude so she it's it's 10 characteristics that make us more successful in life and well-known people who can really bring them to life um, and she was gratitude and uh, so that's called the 10 pillars of success. And then there should be lots of stuff on my website. It's called performanceinmind.co.uk. And there's a section called performance zone where you can download some worksheets. There's loads of blog posts um, and there's lots of information on there.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Josie. It's been really great to talk to you and look forward to doing it again another time. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links relevant to this episode, including Josie's books. And all of them are on a page on her website that I have linked to directly from the show notes. So go and check them out. They all seem very interested, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to order at least one of them myself. Next Monday, I interview David tilbury Davis, who's a coach of uh, athletes like Ashley Gentle, Sky Monch, and many, many others. Uh, So that will be a very good coaching chat once again with David, who has been on the podcast several times before. And uh, then as a call to action for today, this might be the final call for our Majorca training camp in April 2024, 20- because at the moment of recording, we only have two rooms left available. So if you want to experience this super fun, super beneficial camp and uh, a fantastic training destination in the island of Majorca, then now is the time to register because we probably won't have availability much longer. So email me, check out the information on our webpage, and we can get you registered. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. If you're looking for electrolytes and fueling products, then I would highly recommend trying them out. You can use their free Fuel and Hydration Planner or even get a free video consultation with the team to prepare your race strategy. And don't forget to take 15% off your first order with the code TTS23. And thank you to Zenate. Use the 8 Swim Training to improve your technique, power and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time-efficient Zenate workout done that will help you swim Better and stronger. You can try the Sennage Risk Free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft love.